Good morning. Everybody awake? All right. Hey, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. As you're turning there, uh, I, uh, I just want to say thank you to all of you for uh, participating with me last Sunday in our opening series, our opening message in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I know that, I know for me and for many of you, uh, that was a special and meaningful uh, time in which we saw the Gospel of Mark in a new light, if you will, in which we saw this amazing prologue to the Gospel of Mark with eyes wide open. You see, in Mark 1, John was speaking about a revival. You look at verse 5, and it says, All the land of Judea came, and all of Jerusalem came out to see this John the Baptist. It was a revival. And yet, John went on to say in verse 8, as we learned last week, that the one coming after him, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the person who would come after him, and the baptism that he would bring, not a water baptism, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that this Jesus Christ and this baptism of the Holy Spirit would be a greater event than that revival in chapter 1, verse 5. And we marveled last week. I know I did. We marveled last week that the power of Christ in you and in me is more powerful than a revival. The power of Christ in us is more powerful than the power of a revival like we saw in verse 5 of chapter 1. It is the power to overcome any obstacle, any sin, any sickness, any disease, any family problem, any marriage that's suffering. The power of Christ in you and in me when we believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, that power is more powerful than a revival. Don't miss that as we begin this series in Mark. Don't miss the emphasis on the power of God to overcome anything as we begin this study in Mark. In November of next year, we are going to be electing a new president. And we're going to go to the polls and we're going to vote. We're going to decide that day in November of 2008 who is to be the next president of the United States. But despite that vote, and despite whoever wins, that person will not be the president until they are sworn in in January of 2009. Despite that vote, despite that confirmation in November of next year of who is going to be the next president, that person will not become, will not take on or carry out the role of the president until they are sworn in in January of 2009, by the Supreme Court Chief Justice. 
It is a coronation of sorts. The inauguration of a president in, in January is the commissioning, if you will, of the president's official duties. He or she was already voted on in the past, but they come and they arrive at the inauguration and that is the time in which they become, they fulfill, they carry out, they begin, they initiate the presidency. Friends, in our study today in Mark, we're going to be in verses 9 to 15. And what we are going to be seeing in verses 9 to 15 is this. We're going to be seeing the commissioning, the inauguration, if you will, the ceremonial act of Jesus Christ's ministry on earth. The title of my message today is The Great Commissioning. This is the great commissioning of Jesus Christ. And it begins with His baptism by John in the Jordan River. It includes the Holy Spirit of God coming down and descending upon Jesus in the form of a dove. It includes the wilderness experience, the temptation of Jesus Christ as He's battling spiritual forces. Friends, what you and I are going to read today is the inauguration of the Messiah, of His earthly ministry. Let's take a look at Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 15, the commissioning of Jesus Christ. It says this in verse 9, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John, In the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him. Verse 14. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask Your special blessing upon this time as we open Your Word. Guide us by Your Spirit, I pray, as we look upon the inauguration of Your Son to His earthly ministry. May we be moved by the Scriptures that we read. May we recognize how we can respond to them in greater faith and obedience to You. In Christ our Lord's name we pray. Amen. Verse 9. Mark 1 says this, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, up until this point, if you look at verse 5 of chapter 1, you'll notice that it's from Judea and Jerusalem where the people are coming from. In your Bibles, verse 5 of chapter 1 says that it was from Judea and Jerusalem that a great multitude of people came. A great multitude of people came out, a revival of sorts, with, to, to come out and to see John the Baptist, to hear his preaching, and to be baptized with a baptism of repentance. But this, in verse 9, is different. 
This is from a different region. And this isn't the multitudes. This is one man. Jesus Christ came from Galilee. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That trek from Nazareth to the region of the wilderness outside Judea where John must have been baptizing, uh, most likely known as Bethany or Bethsaida, that was quite a, quite a journey. Uh, that was a full day's journey, if not two days' journey. And Jesus is seen coming as one from a distant region, as opposed to the multitudes who had come from the near region. And He comes to John, and He goes to the Jordan River, and Mark goes on to say quite plainly that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus was baptized. Jesus was baptized. Do you ever wonder how John the Baptist performed that baptism? How absolutely terrified he must have been baptizing the very Son of God? What might he have said to him at a time like that? Well, yes, Jesus, could you please share your testimony for all to hear? I baptize you in the name of the Father, in the name of, well, of you, and of the Holy Spirit. I'm making light, but I'm bringing out the point here. What was John thinking? What was he doing as he was baptizing the very Son of God? What must have been going through his mind? Mark doesn't give us an indication, but Matthew does. If you look at Matthew 3, it indicates that when John saw Jesus coming, he said, no, 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 I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. It's not right that I baptize you. You baptize me. And yet Jesus goes on to say in Matthew's account that no, it is right that you baptize me. It is fitting. It is proper to fulfill all righteousness. And so John baptized Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Was Jesus' baptism different from the rest? Absolutely. Absolutely. You see, John preached a baptism of repentance according to chapter 1, verse 4. A baptism of repentance where repenting people were coming out to Him, confessing and acknowledging their sin, and being baptized as a symbol of that inner contrite heart that they were exhibiting. They were being baptized as a symbol of their desire to turn away from sin and back to the living God. Sinners from all over Judea and Jerusalem came to partake of this baptism. It was a baptism of repentance. But the Bible is clear that Jesus never sinned. Thus, Jesus was most certainly not required to be immersed in a baptism of repentance. Why was He baptized then? What did it mean? What did Jesus' baptism mean? In truth, we can only speculate what it meant. Because none of the Bible accounts indicate for what purpose Jesus was being baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, we can infer some things, and I think we we come very close to the meaning of Jesus' baptism as we infer some of the things that I'm about to show you, of which many Bible scholars have assumed over the years, that this, in fact, was the meaning of Jesus' baptism. But we can only infer, because the text does not indicate what it meant. 
but we can have good reason to believe that there are at least three things that was significant about Jesus' baptism. I want to take note right now, what was the significance? What did it mean when Jesus was baptized? First, consider this. Jesus' baptism validated John's ministry. It validated John's ministry. When Jesus came to John and said, yes, baptize me as well, what he in effect was saying to all those multitudes watching is, yes, what this man is doing is proper and is good and is right. I'm validating John's ministry. Corresponding to that, number two, it served as an, exa- as an example for others to follow. When Jesus was baptized by John, he was in effect saying to all those around him, be baptized by this man. Be, baptized, be identified with this man's message. And be baptized in water as this man is baptizing. Jesus was in effect serving as an example to others. He was validating John's ministry. But third, and perhaps most importantly, Jesus' baptism properly initiated Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus' baptism properly initiated His earthly ministry. It is this third and final element of of the significance of this baptism that comes to the forefront in verses 10 and 11. Read with me in verses 10 and 11. It says this, And immediately, that is, directly following the baptism, coming up from the water, Jesus saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon Him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This baptism, this baptism of Jesus was unlike any other baptism before it. As Jesus was immersed in water and brought up out of the water, something miraculous happened. It says the Spirit descended upon Him like a dove. And the Father said, You are My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now that word parting there, the word parting there, in yellow, that's an unfortunate translation, friends. It's the Greek word uh, schizo, which means to tear open. To rip apart. The heavens themselves were ripped apart. In fact, the NIV has the best translation of that. If those of you who have an NIV Bible, it says it was torn apart. The heavens were torn apart. Torn away. This was a miraculous event in which Jesus Himself was looking up into the sky and seeing the heavens being torn apart. Schizo, from which we get the word schism, meaning divide. It was divided. Heaven and earth, at that point in time, became as one. Heaven, the skies were torn apart. It's interesting to know that the only other use of this verb, schizo in Greek, is found in, in Mark, that is, is found at the end of Mark, chapter 15, verse 58 in which it says at the death of Jesus Christ, the veil of the temple was schizo, was torn in two. When Jesus died, the veil covering the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem was ripped apart. 
That was the only other use. There was only two uses of that verb in all of Mark. And that was the second. And this is the first. And so we see this verb is significant. This verb indicates that something miraculous is happening. Heaven is being torn open. The Spirit is descending upon Jesus. The Spirit is descending upon Jesus like a dove, it says. Now, few, I say few would understand this uh, to mean a literal, physical dove coming down. For the essence of the Spirit of God is precisely that. It is Spirit. The Spirit is not physical by nature, and thus the manifestation of the Spirit found in Mark 1, verse 10, should be understood in terms of how the Spirit came, not in what form the Spirit came upon Jesus. I say again, we should understand this as how the Spirit came upon Jesus, not in what physical form the Spirit came upon Jesus. Mark says the Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. That is to say, in a gentle and in a peaceful manner, the Spirit of God came upon Jesus. This was not like those city pigeons of San Francisco. Those are not gentle and peaceful. In fact, there have been many a times in which I've been attacked by city pigeons in San Francisco. But this, no, no, this is like a dove, Mark says. The Spirit of God descended like a dove in a gentle and in a peaceful, harmonious manner upon Jesus Christ. And a voice came from heaven. He said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Those of you a bit more studious, you may want to refer to Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7, and Isaiah 42, verse 1. In those two texts, Psalm 2, 6 and 7, and 40, Isaiah 42, 1, you see pieces of each of those texts, Old Testament texts, combined in the Father's statement to Jesus. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. As Jesus was giving validation to John's ministry in the Jordan. As Jesus was saying, yes, this is, this is right and this is good and you should partake of this baptism, so also the Father was looking upon His Son at His baptism and saying, yes, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father is validating the ministry of His Son, Jesus Christ. He is giving His token of appreciation and the honor that is due the Son as a result of Him taking upon Himself this ministry. And the Father is validating that. Now before we move on, I need to address one other, one other very important question here. In verse 10, it notes that the Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. Now I want to focus in on that statement there. The Spirit descended upon Him like a dove. What does that mean? Um, Christians over, uh, those reading the Word of God over the centuries have come up with really two options here. On the one hand, uh, they argue, next slide, that it could be the indwelling of the Spirit coming upon Jesus, uh, or I should say rather filling Jesus, if you will. Or it could be the anointing by the Spirit, that is to say a special anointing for the task, for a special mission or task that we see in the Scriptures. 
Um, I say very clearly that the first option there is not a biblical option. I say very clearly that the first option listed there, the indwelling of the Spirit upon Jesus at that time, is not in keeping with the Orthodox Christian faith. Um, There are many cult groups, aberrations of Christianity, who would argue that this is the indwelling of the Spirit in the person of Jesus Christ for the first time. In other words, at this baptism, they argue, Jesus became the Son of God. Or Jesus became the Messiah. I say very clearly that this is not the case. It is important to note that Jesus was not receiving the Spirit for the first time. The Bible is clear that Jesus was both fully man and fully God. Even from His incarnation, from the time He left His Father's side in heaven and came to earth as a baby, Jesus possessed the very nature of God. He had no need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, for He Himself was already fully God. So we should understand the descent, the Spirit's descent upon Jesus in terms of God's anointing Jesus with the Spirit as Jesus commenced His earthly ministry. In a sense, this is the great commissioning. This is the anointing of Jesus. It is the inauguration, if you will, of someone who is already in that office. Of someone who has already assumed that office. And yet this moment is the inauguration of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of His ministry. I refer you also to Acts 10.36 and Luke 4.16 if you have questions about that matter. But it is a very important distinction to make. Jesus was not indwelt for the first time here. He was being anointed by the Spirit. Verse 12, moving on. It says this, immediately, verse 12 and 13 actually, immediately the Spirit drove Him, that is Jesus, into the wilderness. And He was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered to Him. No sooner had the heavens been torn open and the Spirit descended like a dove upon Jesus, anointing Him for ministry, no sooner had that happened than immediately that same Spirit of God pushed Jesus out into the wilderness, into the desert regions outside Judea, out into the far remote regions of the earth to be tempted. Don't miss the repetition of the word wilderness in verses 12 and 13. Mark wants the reader to be clear that Jesus went out to a particular region of the world with the direst climate and environment. It was not a place where mankind desired to be. The wilderness was generally regarded as hostile, even cursed. Yet it was in the wilderness that John baptized. It was in the wilderness where a great revival commenced. It was in the wilderness where Jesus was baptized. All of this is to say that salvation, don't miss this, salvation wasn't coming in the normal purview that is the viewpoint of the Jew. It wasn't beginning in Jerusalem in the temple where they might have expected it to come. No, 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 no. The good news, the coming of the Messiah, 
the beginning of God's plan for all of human history began outside the normal confines of the temple in Jerusalem. It began in the wilderness. In effect, what we are seeing here is the rejection, the rejection of what was happening in Jerusalem and in the temple. The rejection of the Pharisees, the rejection of the religious aristocracy of that day. And God, in effect, was saying, no, 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 no. Salvation, guess where it's coming? It's coming in the place where you least expect it. It's coming in the wilderness. It's coming in the hostile environment. It's coming in the place where most view it as a curse. And Jesus was anointed in the wilderness and He was tested in the wilderness. He was there 40 days, tempted by Satan with wild beasts and it says the angels ministered to Him. And now those of you who know your Bibles, you might say, that's it? Two verses on the temptation of Jesus? You see, in Matthew, Matthew spends 11 verses on this same story. In Luke, Luke spends 13 verses on this same story. Why does Mark only devote two verses to this story? Why is Mark so succinct? Why is his Gospel so to the point? Here again, I can only speculate. But I have good reason to believe that the reason why Mark is so brief is to highlight the plain and simple fact that as Jesus is anointed for ministry in the wilderness, so also the ministry that He is being commissioned for, the ministry that He is being inaugurated unto, is a spiritual ministry. It is a ministry that entails a battle between spiritual forces. The world that Jesus comes into is a world where Satan and his demons are greatly and readily at work. The forces of evil have terrorized God's creation, wreaking havoc and unrest, wars and injustice, hunger and suffering, even demonic possession. And Jesus is entering a spiritual war zone. That's all Mark wants us to know. In his comments on the brevity of the temptation account, John Grasmick says this, a, a really good statement about this. He says this, Mark's temptation account is brief. He said nothing about the temptation's content, its climactic end, or Jesus' victory over Satan. His concern was that this began an ongoing conflict with Satan because of the vocation or the mission that Jesus had accepted in His baptism, He faced a confrontation with Satan and His forces. This is so to the point, because you see, friends, as we read Mark 1, 2, 3, on into chapter 8, you know what we're going to see more than anything? More than anything, we're going to see Jesus battling demonic forces. And Mark is in essence saying, we're beginning a spiritual battle right here, right now. And Mark 1 through 8 is going to discuss very greatly and in detail many, many accounts in which Jesus battled demonic possession, in which Jesus encountered demons and spoke with them, in which He cast them out and conquered them. This is Mark's concern. And he's brief and to the point to just simply say, we're entering a spiritual war zone. Verse 14 and 15 says this, now, after Jesus was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, 
preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. John's put in prison. If you want to read about the details of that imprisonment, turn to Mark 6. We're not going to look at it today. Mark 6 accounts for how John was put in prison. And it says that Jesus, following this imprisonment, left the Jordan. He left the wilderness area around Judea, and He returned home. He went back to Galilee. It is in Galilee where we see and, and, and find Jesus preaching and healing for the next eight, eight chapters. And while in Galilee, Mark offers a summary statement about what Jesus did. He says, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. He goes on to say that Jesus was, was saying that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God? Uh, Tom made mention of, uh, of the fact that he spoke to the Stony Brook Junior Hires about the topic of the Kingdom of God. I commended him for that. Um, we were discussing about how he was going to go about that in, their, in his uh, teaching sessions. And I, I, from what I've heard, he, he did just an excellent job in explaining it. What Tom told the kids, and what I'm telling you here today, is this, that the Kingdom is a twofold concept. It is a twofold concept. On the one hand, the kingdom of God is that future eschatological time and place in which God will rule and reign the nations by means of His Son, Jesus Christ. It is that time in the future where those who believe in Jesus Christ will be participants, if you will, in God's kingdom on earth, where God will rule and reign by means of Jesus Christ forever and ever. That, on the one hand, is the kingdom of God. A place, a realm, in the eschatological future. On the second hand, however, and perhaps most importantly for our purposes today, is that the kingdom of God is a state of being. That is to say that the kingdom of God is what you and I experience when we who are saved by believing in Jesus Christ for everlasting life are baptized by the Holy Spirit of God and when we live and act and come under the rule and reign of God in our personal lives, we are in effect carrying out the kingdom of God. It is a twofold concept. And what Tom was telling the kids in the junior high of Stony Brook, was that you have an opportunity to create, if you will, to form, if you will, the very kingdom of God in your school, in your community, when you rely on the Spirit of God within you. When you come under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, you are participating in the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Twofold concept, a place and a state of being. From this, we can make the assessment that God's kingdom, when Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, from this we can make the assessment that God's kingdom has come near in the person of Jesus Christ. 
When we believe in Christ, are baptized by the Holy Spirit, and God begins to work in our hearts, conforming us to His purpose, to His reign, then it can be said that we are participating in the very kingdom of God. And that is what Jesus meant in Luke 17.21 when He said, the kingdom of God is within you. Luke 17.21 The kingdom of God is within you. Jesus says in Mark 1.14 The kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1.15 Is near to you. In my person, Jesus says, I have come to show you the way to experience the very kingdom of God. Now hold that thought on the kingdom. Place that in your minds. Store it away for just a moment. And move briefly with me to the last sentence in our study today. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Two action items. Two verbs. Repent and believe. In the gospel. The word repent is the Greek verb metanoeo. It is a compound word from the Greek word meta, meaning with, and the Greek word nous, or mind, nous, meaning mind, with the mind. At its most basic element, it is a change of mind. However, that's not all repentance is. In many, many scriptures, The word repentance is more than just a change of mind. It is a literal and physical turning from sin. It is changing a mind about sin, changing one's outlook and one's view of sin, and turning from it. We see it used in both contexts in the Scriptures. At times, repentance simply means change your mind about this. And at times, it means change your mind and take action and move away from it. The second action item, believe. The Greek verb pistuo has a very complex meaning. It means to believe. Okay, some people caught that. Good. It means to believe. To have faith in. To believe. I, I, I don't uh, shy away from the word trust. I don't shy away from the word receive. I think those are fitting examples. Although I think the word believe is self-sufficient. I know what it means to believe something. Two action items here. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And it is this that Mark says that Jesus was proclaiming to the people. Now, so often, um, I find that some people read these words, repent and believe in the Gospel, in Mark 1.15, and they make the assumption that Jesus here is speaking merely about becoming a Christian. They make the assumption here that Jesus is concerned with becoming a Christian, a believer. Uh, In fact, just three weeks ago, four weeks ago now, I found myself in a conversation um, with an acquaintance. uh, And he was quite adamant that in Mark 1.15, these two action items were essential, were required, if you will, to become a Christian. And he was, uh, we were in an email dialogue, and, and, and I will say very clearly, normally and usually, I find email conversations to not be very effective. Um, you don't hear the tone of someone's voice. 
you, you, you miss out on, on their demeanor and how they're presenting themselves. And it, usually it ends up to be, to be a rather fruitless endeavor. Don't ever resolve conflict over email. It, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. In any event, he was very adamant that Mark 1.15 had to do with the two action items required to become a Christian. And I said, uh, I said, fair enough. Fair enough. Let's grant that just for the moment. Let's grant for just for the moment um, that you're right and that repentance and belief are both needed to become a Christian. I said, how then do you translate Mark 16.16? 16? Take a look behind me at the passage now. How do you translate that one? Now, granted... Um, and I, 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 say this, I say this very clearly. I wasn't bringing this out to be like, nailed ya! Gotcha! No. I brought this out to say, look. Look with your eyes. If you see that you assume that repentance and, bapti- uh, excuse me, that repentance and belief are needed to become a Christian, then how can you not apply that same hermeneutic, that same principle of interpretation to what you see in Mark 16.16? 16? It's in the same book. One's at the start of the book. One's at the end of the book. And if you assume that Mark 1.15 refers to how to become a Christian, then how do you possibly account for Mark 16.16? And, uh, of course, uh, most of you should be aware that that baptism is in no way an evangelical understanding of, of, of a requirement needed in order to be saved. No, we always understand baptism to be something that follows conversion, that follows our faith in Christ. And uh, needless to say, I, I didn't get a response to this. And I don't know if that, if, if, if you know, again, emails are just kind of pathetic and, and I don't recommend it. But nevertheless, I hope it made him think. Because you see, friends, if you're going to apply that hermeneutic to Mark 1.15, you have to apply it to Mark 16.16. 16. Be consistent. If repentance and belief are both required for, for becoming a Christian, then it seems to me that belief and baptism should also be required. Ah, but I didn't show you all of Mark 16, 16. Take a look at the end of it. But he who does not believe will be condemned. You see, Mark makes it very clear. As he's quoting the words of Jesus, he says one thing very clear. He says that believing, faith, Pistuo is all that is needed to become a Christian. He doesn't go on to say in Mark 16, 16 that those who don't repent will be condemned. Neither does he go on to say in Mark 16, 16 that those who are not baptized will be condemned. No, no, no. Mark says very clearly to clarify through the words of Jesus himself as he's penning Jesus' words. He's saying Jesus said this and then he said to clarify believing those who don't believe are the ones who will be condemned. Now, a question is looming in all of our minds right now. You say, well, wait a minute. What then does it mean to repent and believe in the Gospel? And what then does it mean to be saved by means of baptism and belief? What in the world would Jesus be talking about in these contexts? Friends, remember what I had you thinking of in your mind a moment ago? What was the topic at hand? It was not justification. The topic at hand was not becoming a Christian. 
The topic at hand in Mark 1, 14 and 15 was none other than the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom of God. And that, friends, is an entirely different thing than simply the act of justification in Jesus Christ. Jesus is urging people, I say clearly, Jesus is urging people to participate in the kingdom of God. Jesus' concern is not that people will avoid hell. He is not simply interested in saving people from hell. Those who try to make the argument that Mark 1.15 proves that repentance is needed to become a Christian miss the mark on the topic Jesus is addressing. Jesus is not speaking of justification. I say clearly, He is speaking of kingdom participation. We might call this becoming a totally vested disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. And what is needed to become a totally vested disciple and follower of Jesus Christ? Repentance is needed. Belief is needed. Baptism is needed. It makes perfect sense. Those are the things. Those are the action items needed to become a total, fully invested person who is following the Lord Jesus Christ and becoming a part of His kingdom. Belief, repentance, baptism. Integral elements of kingdom living. Jesus is not suggesting that repentance or baptism is needed to be justified. That would fly in the face of everything that Paul teaches on the justification by faith alone. Instead, he is speaking about kingdom living. He is saying three action items, belief, repentance, baptism, that are good and proper responses that incur God's favor. It is fitting and right that these action items take place in order for a person to be fully aligned with the kingdom of God. And might I add very clearly that belief is the featured element. Belief is the featured element in Mark 1.15. Belief is the featured element in Mark 16.16. 16. It is the only one of the three action items that is repeated. It is as if Jesus is saying, without belief, the repentance and baptism that you seek is all but meaningless. Mark 16.16, 16, note clearly the end. It is not he who does not repent that is condemned. It is not he who is not baptized that is condemned. The person condemned is the one who does not believe. How do I become a Christian? Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. Is that all there is? Is that all there is to Christianity? No. No way. No way. Friends, it is so much more than fire insurance. Do not be content to enter into the kingdom. What I wish of all of you and of me is that we would become fully vested disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. Fully vested kingdom people. How do I join in on that kind of work? You repent. Change your mind about sin. Turn away from it. You be baptized. You identify with the person of Jesus Christ by becoming united to Him in water baptism. And these are just a couple action items. This is just the beginning of what it means to be a kingdom participant. As I turn to the application, I want us to consider what we've learned here today. 
Um, consider this. We've, we've looked at three sections of Jesus's, of the story of Jesus, if you will. We've looked at His baptism, His temptation, and His message. His baptism first. Jesus was not receiving the Spirit for the first time at His baptism. Instead, He was being anointed by the Spirit for ministry. Know that. That is an important distinction, friends. Do not be persuaded by those who make the argument that Jesus was here for the first time being indwelt. That is an incorrect view of Jesus Christ's baptism. Two, Jesus encountered a spiritual war zone following His commission to ministry. And I say be on your guard because Satan is especially concerned with disrupting those who seek to carry out God's will. It is not without coincidence that... um, that we find the temptation directly following the commission of Jesus. When people purpose in their hearts to seek God's will, that is when Satan begins to attack most mightily. And third and finally, do not miss this. Jesus was and is concerned with people becoming full participants in God's kingdom. It is to be expected that not only faith, but also repentance and baptism should be characteristics that mark kingdom people. Are you a kingdom kind of person? And I say again, these characteristics are just the beginning. Just the beginning. Believing, repenting, being baptized. Just the beginning. There's so much more to the kingdom life than just those three action items. Are you a kingdom participant? Are you fully vested in the person of Jesus Christ and in what He wants to do through your life? I say clearly there is no greater life to live than you who come under the rule and reign of God Almighty. Become a part of the kingdom of God here and now on this earth. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, God, I thank You for this this time. I thank You for Your Word. I thank thank You, Lord, for the way in which um, You have instructed us today by Your Spirit. We've learned um, about Your Son's commissioning, Father. We've come aware of the spiritual forces that are readily present in the world. Same forces that tempted our Lord and Savior. And Father, we're mindful of the message of Christ. Not merely that people would enter the gates of heaven, but that they would become fully vested in kingdom living. That they would not merely believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they would also repent of their sin, turn away, change their mind about sin, and turn away from it, that they would be baptized, that they would identify with You, Father. And moreover, Lord, that they would go on to live the kind of life that You would have them live. Father, we are mindful today, and we declare that Your power in us, the Spirit of Christ in us, is more powerful than a revival. And by that power, we live the kingdom of God right here and right now. I thank you for those in this church who are living the kingdom life, who love others unconditionally, who give of their time, their money, their resources, and all of their efforts, knowing that there is something greater to this life than just the physical comforts of this world. We are in the business of building kingdom people, Father. May this church 
be contributors to your kingdom on earth. In Christ our Lord's name we pray. Amen.